This is episode 305. What if binge eating and sugar cravings are not that strongly linked to emotions? What if we've been focusing our attention on deep emotional issues, peeling layer upon layer of the onion back and getting lost in stories of trauma, pain and being triggered? When in actuality, if we worked on the habit using structure and practical approaches with healthy boundaries that are unhindered by the complexity of emotions, that we would be free of these problems. What if that's the answer to changing your sugar cravings and the sugar binges that follow? On this episode, we chat with a recovered overeater who happens to be also a psychologist, and we talk about how to practically rebuild and restructure your behavior around food to eventually be free of the shackles that you feel food has on you. Sounds pretty good, hey? Oh, and we also chat about some of the possibly unethical links that sugar marketing companies do too. Shaking fist in the air. (laughs) Okay, let's dive in. Welcome to the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. You've tuned in because you want to start taking your health seriously, so you don't, well, get sick and die. Here we talk all things health, nutrition, and human optimization. Let's jump into it with your host and resident scientist, Maddie Lansdowne. What's up, my healthy friends? Here we are back on the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast, ready to dive into a juicy conversation that hopefully is going to help you take a perspective on emotional and binge eating that might be new or fresh and just the thing that you need to hear right now, especially if your goals are on the same page as mine. Because in 2023, it's my mission to coach 500 people to stop the binge eating and savage self-talk cycle so they can lose weight whilst feeling in control and without restriction along the way. And today's amazing guest spends his professional time in this exact space as well. I want you to meet Glenn Livingston. This fine man is a veteran psychologist with a PhD that works in the binge eating space and formerly was the longtime CEO of a multi-million dollar marketing consultancy firm, which has serviced several Fortune 500 clients, specifically in the food industry. After going on his own health journey with food and seeing what the sugar industry did to the world and with the rising obesity rates, he turned his attention away from marketing and across to binge eating. And in the process, he became disillusioned by what traditional psychology had to offer overweight and or food-obsessed or sugar-addicted individuals. Glenn then spent several decades researching the nature of binging and overeating via work with his own patients and a self-funded research program with more than 40,000 participants. He's actually also been here with us before on episode 96, back in the days of double-digit episodes, and I really do recommend you go and give your index finger a workout to scroll through all the amazing episodes we have to check out episode 96 once you've finished with this one right here. Anyhow, Glenn, my friend, welcome back to the show. How are you doing? Thank you. I'm delighted to be here again. It's nice to see you. It's nice to see you too. And I'm glad that we're not in a lockdown pandemic like we were last time we caught up. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Yeah, it was a couple of years ago, wasn't it? It was. Time flies, right? Yeah. I still have some hair and teeth, but um, I'm getting older. Now you look fantastic. Thanks. I'll be 60 this year. Wow, really? Yeah. I I honestly would not have guessed that. I wouldn't have guessed it either. (laughs) (laughs) Is that because you stopped counting? (laughs) I I, Actually, I've always looked forward to being older, right? My dad told me he wouldn't really pay attention to what I had to say until I was 40. Right. So as a, resu- as a result, I always wanted to be a year older, a year older, a year older. And turned that he didn't pay attention to what I had to say after that either. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> yeah, what are you going to do? <laughs> right, parents, eh? Um, so I have a really interesting question. Well, it's interesting to me, so hopefully it'll be interesting to the listeners. But 
since we've caught up last, it's been, you know, two or three years and being in the startup phase of running my own podcast and business in the health and wellness space, but really the, the space is irrelevant. What I've learned in this sort of personal brand self-marketing world is that I've spent a significant amount of my time on marketing, on figuring out how to communicate this stuff to the world uh, in a way that leads them to action, right? Um, and so I feel like at this point, I've almost forgotten my actual profession and qualifications and that I'm just a, an average marketer. Um, and so I'm really curious because often in these marketing conversations with marketing you know, consultants and uh, coaches and that type of thing, the conversation is about psychology. It's about behavior change and about getting people to change and, and make a decision and motivate them to act. And so I'm curious how being a psychologist allowed you to be such a successful marketer. What's the link there? Um, that's such a very interesting question. No one's ever asked me that before. You know, originally, I, I'm a clinical psychologist, psychologist by training, so I never wanted to go into marketing per se. I just you know, I used to have my little friends come over and lie down on the couch and tell me about their mother when I was a kid. Um, and that's all I ever really wanted to do, just tell people. But I, I married a marketer. And so I, I had studied um, type of behavioral modeling, which allowed us to predict what people were thinking and what they would do without having to ask them questions. And I wound up consulting for large companies based upon that knowledge. Um, you know, my father hated marketing. Talked about my dad before. And I would say, Dad, I don't really understand that because you actually are a marketer. You can't be a psychologist without being a marketing because ethical marketing is convincing people in words to do what's in their best interest. And uh, psychotherapy is convincing people in words to do what's in their best interest. So if you, if you look at it like that, it's really the same. What he didn't like was the unethical marketing. Um, yeah. you know, I, I think that I was on the wrong side of the war 30 years ago. I, I think that I was helping big companies to you know, sell sugar to kids and do things that I really shouldn't have been doing. But, um, there is this overlap where people think that they need to be a smart shopper. They like to think of themselves as making rational decisions and people don't really make rational decisions. They, they buy for emotional reasons and then they justify it with logic. And so there were these psychological techniques that I could use to get at that, to figure out what they were thinking without having to ask them what they were thinking. Um, very powerful. Like, like I said, I feel a little bit like the Marlboro man at the end of his life. but kind of contrite, like I should have done that. I've been trying to make up for it these last 10 years or so by, uh, you know, helping to, unaddict people from all these bags and boxes and containers that hyperpalatable concentrations of starch and sugar and fat and oil and cytotoxins that they target the bliss point in the reptilian brain without giving you enough nutrition to feel satisfied. Um, so yeah, so that there, there's a great overlap in knowing how to talk to people, figure out what they really want. Um, it's just that now I use that for a good, and before I was in the dark side of the force. So. <laughs> well, I, firstly, I just want to acknowledge you because I think it takes courage to look back on former decisions and, uh, you know, possibly judge them as the wrong decision or the wrong being on the wrong side of the war, as you phrased it. Youth is wasted on the young. 
<laughs> Isn't it? <laughs> yeah. We, we all make decisions in our life. Now we wish we would have done differently. So. Yeah, totally. But I think I think I'm doing a lot of good in that. I think I'm doing a lot of good. Well, and that's what I was going to say next is the fact that you one acknowledge that and and have changed your feelings about it, but two are now actively doing something to to maybe uh, fix the mistakes of the past, or you know however you want to phrase it, um, do good in a, a time where you might not have done good previously or had different motivations. So I think yeah, we we love you either way. <laughs> we appreciate Thank the you. work you do Thank either you. way. Thank you very much. No, that's yeah. totally fine. I guess. My curiosity is just getting the better of me here, which is, you know, you mentioned doing some of that marketing to people that, and the unethical marketing. What type of marketing are the sugar companies doing that you would consider unethical? Well, I, I don't know if you could technically say that it's unethical, but I wasn't really happy about the product. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I look at the epidemic of diabetes and cardiovascular disease and kidney disease and all these diet reversible or diet preventable conditions. And so much of it was caused by, um, you know, sugar, by this concentrated sugar and, and salt and um, all the other nasty chemicals I mentioned. And I, I, the people who were doing it are not really evil because that's what the consumer really wanted. Unfortunately, it was easier to sell that, but uh, I just, I don't feel good about, you know, my life being about having kids eat more sugar. I just don't think that was the right thing to do. Um, some things border on unethical, but like when you are when you're packaging things in a way to signal to the evolutionary brain that there's a diversity of micronutrients available because of the diversity of colors, but what's really happening is you've hardly put any of those micronutrients into the food that you have. You're just making it look like it is. And our brains respond to that. Um, I'm not quite sure that that's ethical. So, um, you know, I, 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 I don't consider myself to, to be the ultimate judge of what's ethical or not. And did the consumers be able to buy what they really want or should there be some regulating body that's, being a good parent, tell them that you can't have your can't have your pudding until you fed your, your salad. I, I don't know, I don't know, but but I I'm happy about what I'm doing now. Put it that way. Yeah, totally. I I, re- yeah. I read something recently which was which pointed something out which may have been there all along when it came to marketing to children with cereals. And it said, if you walk down the cereal aisle, you'll notice that all of the characters that have been created around these cereals are obviously, you know, sort of these cartoon characters that get have sort of children's buy in to like the character and the identity and what it means to, to do what that character does. But also if you walk down the aisle, you'll notice that all of the eyes of those characters on the boxes are looking down so that when the children look up at the shelf, they're being looked at. They don't, the eyes don't look at the parents. Yeah. Yeah. That's scary. It's so scary. It's so scary. I mean, and I think some of these things have chemicals in the packaging or the food itself, food like substance itself, that will turn off your ability to know when you're full. Um, Some of the, some of the like bags of chips and things are made on a multitude of assembly lines. So there's a slight variation in flavor because when, when you're in nature, if you find a slight variation in flavor, you're probably finding a diversity of nutrients. So you just kind of keep going. So um, 
Okay, there are things like that that I think are on the borderline of being. Not sure that's going to get you into heaven or not. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, my job is to help people to get themselves unaddicted and manage their cravings mm-hmm. for those types of things if they're overdoing it. That's my job. Yeah, to whatever extent they want to do it. And a lot of people include those in their diets. A lot of people don't. Um, there's a way to recover one way or the other if they want. So that's what I need now. Just, just the way you framed that, maybe brought up the question for me about abstainers versus moderators. Do you believe that you, that there's one or the other and there's very few moderators, or do you believe you can become a moderator? You can successfully moderate your relationship with sugar. So I've worked with over 2000 clients with mine, all the coaches that work with me in groups. And, and so I have very strong opinion about that. I, I see like about two out of three people are able to moderate and the third one has to abstain. But it, it, it varies from person to person, and it also varies from substance to substance. So some people, like I, I can't eat chocolate at all, period, end of story. I, I tried six ways to Sunday, and um, I started eating chocolate, and, you know, I, I want to throw your mother aside and go for the chocolate cake. That, that's me. But most other things, if I want to have a little, I can plan it out and put it in very specific conditions under. You can easily do that with flour. I can do it with salt. It's, um, can't do it with chocolate. Mm-hmm. Um, so some people are moderating flour, but they are not moderating cheese. Some people are moderating cheese, but they're not moderating sugar. It, some people have to abstain from all of it. It's it's um, it my, my there are two ways to figure that out. I, I have people write two separate hypothetical targets for themselves. One target would be. Like I will never have chocolate on a weekday again. Another one will be I'll never have chocolate again. I have to become a person who doesn't eat chocolate. And then if you project yourself out for a year having tried both of those scenarios and you see yourself walking through a dead, what what do you see? What's different about each of those situations? What's not just your weight, but your energy level and your presence of mind and your relationships and your productivity and your your experience at work and all of that. Um, if they're not very different, then probably your intuition says you could moderate. Usually that intuition tends to be right. Um, but if you try four separate rules, if you say, well, okay, let's try never having chocolate during the week. Well, that didn't work. Okay, I'm only going to have chocolate after I've worked out for an hour and a half. Okay, well, that didn't work. Well, I'm only going to have chocolate on my sister's cousin's parakeet's birthday. Um, <laughs> when you when you tried four or five different rules and it doesn't work, then that probably means you need to abstain. That's mm-hmm. not that's meant. Yeah, I'm curious with the abstinence idea. I f- I find in the experience that I've had it personally as well, but also working with the cl- type of clients that I work with, is that and it, and it probably sort of filters into that whole fad extreme diet change, is that when you project out I'm going to change something forever or for a significant period of time, that overwhelm of I'm not going to have this experience for months, years, or ever is so overwhelming that it's the idea is abandoned. Um, and then it's, and for some people it needs to be a day by day approach or a meal by meal approach. Like, you know, I'm not going to have it today. 
um, and we'll we'll start that conversation again tomorrow. Do you have a similar experience? And I guess second to that, um, how how do you help people navigate that overwhelm of such a long period of time without? Yeah. So if you ask people, this is going to be a long answer, but it's That's worth okay. the premise. That's okay. why we've got a podcast. <laughs> um, if you ask people, could you give up chocolate forever? They'll go, I couldn't do that. If you ask them, you think you could become the kind of person who doesn't eat chocolate? I think, well, maybe I could. Because character trumps willpower. We, we, character is what you habitually do at the moment of temptation. And we have unwritten rules in our character that we abide in, in, in all the time because of the kind of people that we are. You know, like you don't push old ladies down in traffic and you don't, you don't take, um, you don't take food from other people's tables at the restaurant. And, you know, there, there are a lot of things that you just don't do. You just never articulated that you don't do it because of the person that you are. So that's the first thing is that when you think of yourself as building character rather than following these Nazi police rules in your head, um, then it becomes less easier. Secondly, the only time you can ever eat healthy is the present, because the present is the only time that you ever have. So when you hear this little voice in your head that says, you can't give up chocolate, you're going to be tortured forever, um, eventually you're going to give in, you say, well, what's this eventually stuff? You're talking about some kind of future. Right now, I choose to, right now I choose to avoid chocolate and have my, my big salad or my kale green smoothie or whatever it's going to be. Um, so you keep bringing it back to the present. You flex your binge-free now muscle. And the more you flex your binge-free now muscle, the stronger that binge-free now muscle becomes so that, that in the future, it actually gets easier, not harder, as your inner voice, that inner destructive voice would, would represent. The third thing is you bifurcate your mind. It's kind of like the angel and the devil on the shoulder. You figure out how to describe the bullseye of an archery target. Um, with precision, because if you don't have a very clear bullseye, you don't know what you're aiming for, you're going to hit something else. And if you miss it, you're not going to know by how much and in what direction and how to make adjustments. So I will say something like, I'll never have chocolate on a weekday again, so that I have a very clear bullseye to shoot at. But now I, now I will bifurcate my mind, and I will say that any thoughts that suggest that I'm going to have chocolate on a weekday, um, those are going to be my pick, you know, you don't have to call it your pig. I happen to call it my pig. Um, sometimes I wish I didn't. I wasn't going to teach this stuff. I, I, I mentioned I used to be big. I used to be a, like almost 300 pounds. Um, I had a real eating problem myself. I'm not just the doctor that works with people. Um, anyway, you, you, I, I used to call that, that inner voice that would suggest that I break my rules. I would say, that's not me. That's my pig. Um, my pig is squealing for pig slop. If it would say, go ahead and, you know, go ahead and break your rule now. You can start your silly diet again tomorrow. I'd say, that's my pig. Um, okay. With a bifurcated mind like that, and it's, it's just a game that you play in your head. Mm -hmm. You can, you can consciously and purposely lie to yourself in a way, get around this forever problem. Um, we both know that it would be silly to stamp a rule in stone forever and be and obstinately insist on sticking to that no matter what happened. I remember I used to have a rule that said, 
I will never eat dried fruit without some nuts and seeds because the nuts and seeds were thought to slow it down. Then there's this research data that came out a couple of years later, years later that said that the nuts and seeds actually made the glycemic load higher. I would have been silly if I wouldn't change my food plan at that point. Yeah. Um, so what you do is you present your food plan as if it were set in stone to this thing inside you that wants to break the rules. It's, it's kind of like when my niece was two years old, I, I said to her, you can't ever cross the street without holding my hand. You're never, ever going to be able to do that. I don't want you to even think about going in the street because she wasn't mature enough to have those images in her head. It was too dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, I lied to her, like, because I knew that in five or six years or maybe before her mother was going to teach her how to cross the street without holding someone's hand all by herself. And she's, um, she's a grown kid at a fancy university now. She's pretty cool. Um, but, but, but I lied to her because it was the only way to manage it. It's the same thing with your inner pig. That, it, that inner reptile comes from the reptilian brain. It's all your survival impulses, the Easter famine, fight or flight, your mate mm-hmm. and it acts like a two-year-old with food and so if if you tell it well we're going to do this for a little while but we'll probably change our mind later on it's going to go can we change it now how about now how about now now how about now let's do it let's do it let's do it right <laughs> and and you'll have no peace it's like like a kid throwing a temper tantrum in a toy store because you occasionally get it it, it does it if it throws a temper temper, temper tantrum long enough that you're going to give that so you lie to yourself and you tell it that it's set in stone. But you know that with forethought and consideration, um, reviewing your experience and not and accumulating knowledge and um, you know things that you want to accomplish, you can change your goals anytime you want. This is a free country and you're or, you know, a free human being with a free mind. And that's part of what being an adult is, is being able to change the target that you're aiming for. But what I suggest is that you pick a target and you aim for it and you commit with it. You commit to it with perfection as you present it to the pig. It's the same, the same way that an Olympic archer aims at that target. Um, they actually see the arrow going into the target. They can feel it in their soul before they let go of the arrow, mm-hmm. right? If they miss the arrow, they're kind to themselves. They don't say, oh, I'm a pathetic archer. I'm never going to get this right. I should shoot all the rest of the arrows in the air. They assess by how much and in what direction they miss and make adjustments. And then they commit with perfection and yell it. I call it committing with perfection and forgiving yourself with dignity. When you, when you do this, you are giving yourself permission to purge your mind of doubt and insecurity and really just become one with that target so that you're not, your energy is not drained and your focus is not drained by all that doubt and insecurity. The the perfect commitment allows you to do that. The last thing I will say about people's fear about this Mm -hmm. is that they're frightened of the feelings of rebelliousness. They'll say, I can't make a hard and fast rule because that will make me feel too rebellious and I will have to binge because of that. You read my mind. I was going to ask that next about the rebellion. (laughs) Yeah, and Janine Roth will even say that any restriction is followed by an equal, equal and opposite binge, even a mental restriction. I think that goes a little too far. I think it is true with uh, overly restricting food. I think that's. I think we need to regularly flood our body with nutrition on a regular basis if you want to, um, if you want to lose weight and feel confident about overcoming your cravings. 
Um, so people will say that you will feel too rebellious. And I'll say, well, that's true. You will feel rebellious. The moment you say, the moment you draw a line, there's going to be a part of you that wants to break it. No question about it. Why reify that feeling? Why reify any feeling? Why reify the feeling of depression or anger or anxiety or joy? Um, it's like saying, well, I'm afraid I'm going to get too happy and I'm going to celebrate with food. I'm afraid I'm going to get too angry and I'm going to have to celebrate with food. No, what you want to do is make food decisions with your head. You want to sever the link between that emotional excitement, whatever type of emotional excitement it be, whether it be rebelliousness, anxiety, any emotional excitement. You want to sever the link between that and overeating the same way that you would sever the link between a fire and burning down the house and your fireplace, you'd have a good fireplace that contains it. So that, that's the kind of work that we do. And I say, yes, I'm going to be rebellious, but I don't make my important food decisions based upon how I'm feeling. I make my important food decisions based upon what I intellectually know and have research to be better for me. 99%. Yeah. So picture this, right? Unlocking your potential, conquering emotional eating, and gaining insights directly from a health and nutrition expert such as myself. That's what we do inside the Healthy Mums Collective Facebook group, which is currently free to join. If you've ever felt trapped by food challenges, struggled with maintaining a healthy lifestyle, or yearned for a community that understands the reasons why you've yo-yo dieted for years, then there's a new chapter waiting to be written. And this is your chance to start writing it by joining us all on Facebook Lives, on engaging posts that push you out of your comfort zone and into growth, and Q&A sessions with me. All of this works as a platform to begin changing your emotional eating problems for good. Oh, and also, as a special gift, you receive my transformative How to Turn Food into Self-Confidence ebook. And that's also for free. I get it. Skepticism might linger. You might think, Maddie, I've heard these ads and I'm not sure. Well, at least a quarter of the members inside the Healthy Mums Collective Facebook group have been paying clients of my emotional eating program at some point over the last three or four years. So if you're not sure, you can post in the group and ask to find out if I'm the real deal or not. It's totally up to you. To join us in the free Healthy Mums Collective and to end your emotional eating and feel good in your own skin and begin that journey, pop down to the show notes below, click the link and breeze through three simple entry questions. Join today and let's embark on a journey of growth and empowerment. The link is in the show notes below. As you described that, I remember what you said in the beginning about uh, the consumer behavior, which is that we purchase on emotion and justify with logic. And so then going with that idea of, you know, 99% of the time using this logical framework and self-management tool, I think about the mum with three kids that hasn't slept properly for four years, that's also got a full-time job. And so you know, and, and, and men as well, um, you know, like anyone that's in a situation that's not a perfect life and they're just, you know, totally depleted, their nervous system's down, they're maybe a little bit sick, all of those things. And then trying to come in with logic at their sort of, you know, your most intellectually challenged time and you're overrun by emotion and reactionary things. Like how, how do we get the muscle big enough to be able to survive even in that situation? This is what my new book is about as compared to the old book. I, I recovered from my own food addiction um, cognitively. I would identify the things the pig would say, like, just start your silly diet again tomorrow. It will be just as easy. And I would remove that justification by proving it wrong. Like the way the brain works, if you have a craving and you have a thought, 
and then you reinforce that thought and that craving by eating the, eating the junk, you're going to be more likely to have that craving even stronger tomorrow. You're going to be more likely to think just start tomorrow tomorrow. So that's what I would call a cognitive refutation, fixing your thinking about food. The impact of that is it makes it less comfortable to cross the line. Um, that doesn't mean that you can't cross it. It's kind of like if you used to have a greased chute that you could slide down, now you put some sandpaper and glass on it. You can still go down, but it's not going to be very pleasant. Um, okay. It took me a long time to recover. And for the first five or six, so it took me many years journaling to get all of those thoughts fixed myself. Over the first five years or so that the book was published and we were coaching all these people, I worked very, very hard to be able to fix people's thinking quicker. What I would find, and, and so, you know, we'll have, we got to the point that we had a 90% reduction in overeating over the first line that it would hold it like 60 or 70% if we looked at it six months over there. Mostly split into the people who kept using the technique, who were doing really well, the people who stopped who weren't. Um, so I thought we were doing pretty darn good with the technique like that. But there was this nagging problem, which I call the screw it, just do it response, um, where it's just exactly what you're saying. People would experience some type of what psychologists call organismic distress. Like, I'm just not okay. There are too many kids that are yelling for my attention. There are too many decisions that I have to make. I didn't get enough sleep. I didn't drink enough water. I haven't been outside. I haven't been able to get out of the rat race all day long. And... And there isn't really enough authentic pleasure in my life. And I found that over time when I addressed those things. The first thing we would address were people's nutrition, which is difficult for me because I'm not a medical doctor or a, a dietitian, but I could see right in front of my eyes that people who were not eating regular, reliable meals, people that were trying to lose weight really quickly, people that were on very extreme diets, um, you know, I'm, I'm only going to have protein shakes or I'm I'm only going to eat meat and leafy vegetables, um, or you know, I'm only going to eat fruit. People that were on the very extreme diets had a much harder time maintaining them than the people who were eating regularly, reliably. People who had more processed foods were having a harder time with the scourges to response than people who gravitating towards more whole natural foods, whether that be plant-based or or you know animal-based. But if they got the junk out of the system, they were better because a lot of that junk creates inflammation that creates organismic distress that makes you feel like there's something wrong. And, and so um, I started looking at a lot of different techniques for, um, for intervening in, it's really called sympathetic nervous system activity. When, you're, when your emergency system is revved up and saying, you know, there's something wrong here we need resources. You can't be so discriminating about food. It's all well and good that you've spent all this time rationally thinking through what you're going to eat. But screw that because we need more resources. You know, um, nom, 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 go dislodge your jaw and empty the delicate intestine <laughs> into it. Um, but I mean, that's kind of what people feel like. It's almost like there's a trigger that goes off. That's yeah. your sympathetic nervous system pushing your the higher level brain, the rational brain out of the way so that you get enough resources for what it perceives is necessary for your survival. In the modern food environment, you can't really trust your instincts like that. It goes towards the, the wrong things. So we help, um, when, 
in retrospect, I recognize that these cognitive lies that I would draw, like I will never have chocolate on a, on a weekday again, they made it really easy to wake up when the sympathetic nervous system was getting too active because you would hear a little voice that said, well, here's why you should have chocolate on a weekday. Um, so I said, oh, okay, there's something wrong. And at the time, I just conceived of it as, well, that's my pig talking, not me. But really what was happening was that my sympathetic nervous system was trying to force me to be less discriminating with food because it needed something. I fumbled my way through to what I actually needed at those times. I, I learned that if I made myself a smoothie, I wouldn't get high with food the same way I would with a chocolate bar, but I would scratch the itch, the urge would go away, and I'd be okay. Like I have what I need right now. I wasn't feeling tortured by the, by the craving. Um, there are other ways that you can wake up a little bit earlier. Most people can teach themselves to become aware when their heart's beating a little bit faster or they're getting goosebumps or um, they're starting to perspire a little bit. Like all these signs of sympathetic nervous system activity, often those will appear before, before the binge fantasy actually appears. Mm -hmm. Then when you learn to wake up at those times, you can redirect your thoughts to something that you know would be authentically pleasurable that you might actually need. I recently gave up, uh, I recently gave up caffeine of any form. I used to be drinking an awful lot of decaf. It's, it's the last vestige of a um, diet-induced health problem that I have. I, I was mistaken in my knowledge about salt. I thought because my blood pressure was low that it was okay that I had as much salt as I wanted to all these years. But it turns out that your arteries, actually your veins and arteries, the walls on them, they actually respond to salt the same way that um, your muscles respond to lifting weights. Mm -hmm. So all these years I was making them harder and harder and I didn't know. And then I had elevated blood pressure. Um, so I had to give up all salt and all caffeine whatsoever, including decaffeinated coffee. And I had a real decaf shot that I would drive over to this um, little place called Racetrack. Uh, it's, not, it's not a racetrack. It just happens to be the name of the gas station. And I really liked the coffee that they made. And often they would give it to me for free because I was there so often. And it was a break for me. It was just a really nice break from a rat race. Um, and I realized that there was this whole fantasy that would start when I would think, oh, I'm going to go get my coffee now. I would be thinking about turning off the computer and walking downstairs. And I'd probably, you know, um, talk to some of the nice people on the way out. And then I get in my car and I can listen to the news and I didn't have to listen to, um, we have to listen to any complaints or solve any business problems. And, and so it was a nice escape. Yeah. Now, here's the interesting thing. Most people will give themselves permission to go break their rules and take a break while they break their rules, but they won't give themselves permission to just take a break. Mm. And so I realized that I could kill that fantasy before it became uncomfortable, before it became something I had to resist. I could kill it by fantasizing about other things that would be pleasurable to me. So most immediately, that was making some uh, herbal tea with a plant-based milk in it. That, and that, that worked for me. I started thinking about that. Then I could, there are also places I could drive to go get a plant-based tea with the, with the milk in it if I wanted to. So, so thinking about what authentic pleasure I really needed, 
up. Sometimes I was actually hungry and I didn't really need the coffee. I was actually, was actually hungry. But there were other types of pleasure where, you know, where we're wired with these dopamine-producing brains that are supposed to give us pleasure. We need a certain amount during the day. And I, I have a list of other things that I can do instead. You know, like, it sounds trite, but if you really understand what's going on, it makes a big difference. So I have yeah. pictures of my niece and my nephew when they were little that I can pull out and look at. I've got a bunch of um, old movies like Blazing Saddles and Gun Frankenstein and you know, The Man with Two Brains and some of my favorite things that I know I can count down for a laugh if I want to, but I can always go to. Um, right now, for a shorter time, I've got some old TV shows that I can grab up if I want, or music I can listen to, or I I spent a lot of money and time moving myself to the beach. I live in a tiny little apartment, but it's right on the beach, so I can walk outside and pick a couple of breaths by the water if I want. Um, so there are all these things that I can do to calm that organismic distress, and that that tends to prevent your brain from going out of rational mode and into the screw it, just do it. So um, that's a lot of what the new book is about. Is how to do yeah, that relates a lot to the work I do. I call them um, routine swap outs. Like if you think of, you know, the anatomy of a habit and the middle piece, which is that the, the routine is obviously to go and get the food and eat the food, right? That's the thing. And you're seeking the pleasure reward or the calming of the nervous system. And so, I get people to put down a routine swap out list to, to, to still feed that same desire or organismic distress as you talk about it um, in order to be able to still still arrive at the reward of maybe dopamine or calming or, you know, yeah, moving, moving through it. Yeah, um, but using a different vessel to get there. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 The other thing that I, I'm wondering too is when it comes to, to doing that, uh, the way that I think about it, and maybe you think differently, but is that in many cases we're using food as an escape from that stressor or problem that's occurring, um, or it might be a calming, but let's just go with the idea of we're trying to escape something. Maybe it's an uncomfortable emotion. Maybe it's a social interaction, you know, whatever it is. With those sort of ideas of going going about it in a, in a different way to have the same reward, in my mind, that's still even though we've made a healthier choice and it might be breath work, it might be meditation, it might be walking out onto the beach, it's still an escape mechanism. So the core problem hasn't been identified, um, whether it be that, you know, sugar makes me feel loved, nurtured, supported, you know, whatever it might be in that space. And so even though the breath work and stuff like that is, is working effectively to stop that practice of binge eating, it's still an escape from whatever boiled up within, within, within you, you know, inside the vessel. And so do you think, and, and maybe you do, maybe you don't, that there's escaping, but then you still also need to do the processing work? Um, I think that's separate and apart from breaking the habit. Mm-hmm. Okay. I, I think it is an indication that there's some emotional work to be done. The danger in talking about that is that people start to think that, you know, they need to analyze themselves and um, you know do all this deep psychological work before they can stop overeating. And you can't actually intervene in the habit. Um, there are other pieces to the emotional eating puzzle that people don't consider. Like a lot of people will tell me that they can't get to bed at night because they feel too anxious unless they have a big plate of carbs, right? And I'll say, well, do you think that it's possible that that big plate of carbs could be making you anxious? What? There's a principle called operant conditioning. 
remember your your brain is a food acquisition machine. It's always looking for ways to acquire calories and nutrition. And uh, there there are we know this from animal studies. There are animal studies on the correlates of anxiety. Anxiety is a very physical experience. Your blood pressure goes up a little bit. Your galvanic skin response goes up a little bit. All those sympathetic activities go up. Well, there are studies where they measure, I remember when in particular they measured a baboon's blood pressure. And whenever its blood pressure went up, group of baboons, they gave them a sugar reward. And don't you know that that group of baboons learn to have consistently higher blood pressure than the control group. And then got diabetes. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. I don't, I don't know. And it was like one of them smoking in the corner. <laughs> hey, man, it's horrible. I can't sit quit smoking in my back. With a top hat on as well. <laughs> yeah. But what did you do with all that advertising stuff? <laughs> uh, <laughs> what did you do? So the point is that it's a two-way relationship. Like, you know, yes, you can escape from overeating with with the junk, but you can also reinforce the anxiety or the, or the uncomfortable emotion with the junk too. Uh, you could prove your like people will say, I'm eating to numb out, I'm eating to escape. And I will often joke with them, well, if your dentist were out of Novocaine, is it okay if they injected you with a bagel? Would that would that work just as well? But but it, you're not eating the bagel just to numb out. You're a big bagel is a concentration of calories that doesn't exist in nature. Um, it's, it's a concentration of a substance that was meant to be good, but it's overly concentrated in your, your system is not prepared for that supersized stimulus. Another word for it is a drug. Mm -hmm. You're getting high with food. So I, I suggest that people who are caught in the emotional eating trap, that they tell themselves that, um, no, I'm not just eating for comfort. I'm also eating to get high with food. And then, yes, you can ask yourself, what, what am I escaping from? What, what would be some better ways to process those feelings? And, um, would it be easier if I, if I didn't have such a large fire inside me? But probably. But the problem with that is it can take five or 10 years to really do that kind of work. Yeah. And um, you know, I say, you can stop overeating even if your mama dropped you on your head and her mama dropped her, her head. <laughs> <laughs> you, you you can you can build a fireplace around the fire rather than putting yeah well and I, I can actually totally relate to sort of what you're alluding to there which is that you can get caught up in your own story for far too long or you can uh, apply stories to the story of the way you remember it and then it grows it kind of you know that's the story grows into a way that totally facilitates and supports your new narrative of emotional eating or sugar addiction or whatever it might be because I was you know traumatized as a child or whatever it might be and, and it can you can embed that story so deeply as an adult about the story that happened when you were younger that it just all becomes this giant piece of identity that I eat chocolate every day yeah, just becomes a big, a big narrative, and it's like um, if you ever went to Alcoholics Anonymous, they develop these drunkalogs. It just they kind of get stronger. It's like a fish story over time, and you know it becomes a fiction that you tell yourself to keep yourself stuck. Yeah, yeah, totally. It's um, yeah, I think the and I think the difference at the moment, and I'm, I use that term loosely, since social media has allowed personal development people on the internet, um, is that we, we've gone through this generation of people, and maybe it's my generation of millennials, where we went so deep into this personal development stuff 
that it was a drug in its own right, you know, like, oh, the, it's all, the world's all about me and my suffering and my trauma and poor me. And, and, and sure, don't get me wrong, I am so grateful that I was introduced to that world because I have a plethora of uh, healed wounds and um, commun- communication skills on the other side that, you know, I may have never been exposed to ever. However, we're also now got this Instagram feed that's full of all these personal development gurus that are talking about our trauma and our trauma and our trauma and our trauma and our trauma. You see, I mean, I, I grew up in a family of 17 psychotherapists. I do remember you saying that. I, yeah. I, it used to drive me crazy though, because there'd be these people around all the time. I, my parents had their practice in the home. And so I used to talk to their patients all the time. They would actually talk to me before they went to talk to my parents and they come out and tell me what they talked about. It was great. <laughs> Double um, therapy. <laughs> but, but everybody's saying, well, I just really feel that. And I was able to say that. And, you know, my inner, my inner child is wounded because of this YNC. And I was like, shut up. Just tell me what's <laughs> <laughs> it, it was a, It was a, a, a kind of a wussification of, um, you know, free will and responsibility for people who focus too much. And it sounds like an awful thing for a psychologist to say, I really am still a compassionate person. And I really, I went for a lot of that therapy myself, but I got, I got really distracted by that and my journey to overcome both reading. And I suffered for maybe 20 years more than I had to um, because I wasn't focusing on the practicalities. I was focusing on the emotional stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Totally hear what you're saying. And I think a lot of people listening are likely in that circumstance of having been wanted, you know, they've wanted to change for a very long time and they've tried repeatedly. Um, but there's a, yeah, there's a story that's stopping them or there's a layer of the onion that they peel back and they're like, Oh, I'm way more broken than I even thought, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, now that everybody hates me, what else should we talk about? <laughs> <laughs> no, you're fantastic. That's why we've got you here. Um, okay. well, I guess where can everybody find your book? Tell us a little bit about that. Oh, um, you know, I made it available for free on my site. So if you go to, to FreatureCravings.com, you click the big blue button, you can get a free copy of the Kindle or the Duck or the PDF. Mm-hmm. Um, the other formats have our traditional charts, but the Kindle and the PDF are free. And I'll also give you a set of food plan starter templates. So these are sets of rules that could accommodate any particular dietary philosophy. Like I said, I prefer people don't use the extremes, but I'll show you examples of um, and then I know some of this sounds a little bit abstract and obtuse when we talk about it in theory. So I recorded a whole bunch of full length coaching sessions. You'll also get that just, um, it's all free. Click the Amazing. big blue button and sign up for the free word of bonuses. You'll wind up with a free copy of the book too. Um, and if you're interested in all the other stuff, like the coaching we have to offer, you'll be led to that if you Fantastic. Yeah, I'll put all of the links for everything down in the show notes below so everybody can get there. DefeatYourCravings.com. Yeah, DefeatYourCravings.com. So yeah, I'll put all the links down below. Scroll down, click the link, jump into Glenn's world, change your life. It'll be amazing. Um, and for anybody that may have been like, oh, what's the what's the pig story? Um, check out the book, but also check out episode 96 because Glenn goes deep into the the pig inside him story, which is a very unique and interesting strategy for managing those cravings. They got a big insight, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the only way that I relate to that is that I love bacon. <laughs> oh, people, um, they don't really always know my name, but they recognize me sometimes. And they'll, they'll point at me at a bookstore and they'll go, you're the pig guy, you're the pig guy. And that's, <laughs> it's a lovely thing to have occur in a first date, I got to tell you. Because <laughs> you've <laughs> sold, how many, how many copies have you sold now? 
there's over a million copies in distribution. Um, Amazing. I write for Psychology Today. We had over a million over a million readers there also. This this really took off. But, yeah. but I recommend that people read the later book rather than the earlier books because this is really updated with the scourges to your response. And there's an awful lot we didn't talk to you, talk about with regards to the science of cravings. Mm-hmm. That's really helpful. How do you how are they formed? How do you extinguish them? And it really helps you take control. So I more highly recommend that defeat your cravings than the old books. I'm making a note for us to do that on the next episode. Okay. Amazing. Okay. So before we finish up for this episode, uh, what is one piece of health information that you wish more people knew about? Um, you know, maybe maybe a little blurb about the science of cravings. Um, cravings are normal. They're actually a survival advantage. If we didn't have cravings 100,000 years ago, we would have starved and died. They're what get you motivated to go figure out how to find food and then go get it and eat it. Um, Cravings are almost always attached to a food stimulus. So it could be a package, a smell, a place, a, a time, um, a memory. There's usually a stimulus that indicates the availability of food. Um, like in primitive times, it was probably following a monkey to a banana tree. Like mm-hmm. it was a quicker way to go find bananas if you could find a monkey and follow the monkey to the banana tree. Um, Cravings, the, the brain turns on cravings when the food stimulus reliably leads to a food reward and it turns them off when it doesn't. The, the worst thing that you can do when you're trying to defeat your cravings is randomly reinforce it. So if you just try really hard for a while and then you um, can't take it anymore and you just go do it for whatever unpredictable reason, you're, you're triggering a response in the brain, which is meant to hold on to learning um, when a food signal becomes less reliable. So if you follow a chimp to a banana tree and it's like 100% reliable in the beginning, eventually the trees in the area are going to start to run out of bananas. So maybe you're only going to find a banana tree with bananas on it 70% of the time. Well, it turns out that it's still more valuable in primitive times to have a 70% reliable signal than to go have to find another one because food was pretty scarce. And you, you know, to be able to reach it without dealing with a competitor, um, the brain does not want to give up on a food signal that becomes less reliable or intermittently reliable. So it's going to double down on its dopamine production. It's going to double down on motivating you to keep after that craving if it just kind of randomly stops producing the reward. So what you want to do is you want to avoid um, what they call variable ratio reinforcement. Variable ratio reinforcement means it's like what happens on a slot machine. You don't know when it's going to pay off. And that's mm-hmm. why you get these people stuck at the machines in, in Atlantic City, um, because if it was only going to pay off on Saturdays at 10 a.m., There'd be a big crowd at Saturdays at 10 a.m. and then there'd be nobody there all week long. I'd be there at 10 a.m. <laughs> so, so you can extinguish your cravings by saying, you know, I'm only going to have chocolate on Saturday morning after my workout because mm-hmm. your brain is capable of learning that that complex set of stimuli have to be present. And otherwise, you know, the slot machine is not going to pay off. What most people do is they they try for a while until they just can't take it anymore. And then they randomly reinforce it. You're actually getting your brain to double down on the craving when you do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so 
there's something called an extinction burst. When, when the reward becomes unavailable, there's a little honeymoon period. So let's say you decide you're going to give up chocolate. The reward, the reward becomes unavailable. There's a little period where the cravings go down for a bit. And then boom, there's that, that intermittent reward. And there's that intermittent temper tantrum looking. The brain throws a bit of a temper tantrum looking to see if maybe the reward has become intermittently available. And it's going to motivate you. If you push through that, if you don't say, well, this is not working, I can't take it. And you, and you keep going, you do all the, you know, things to soothe yourself that we talked about, then it will start dropping down. And eventually you're going to get to the point that the cravings are labeled dormant. Cravings don't actually get erased because the brain doesn't want to give up its learning, mm -hmm. but the brain also wants to be very efficient and it doesn't want to waste energy in craving something you're never going to do. So it will label that craving dormant until such time as you reactivate it. So don't, don't, don't break your rules once you get them once you got them set and then you'll, you'll be free. You definitely will be free. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. I, I like that um, message about yeah. Random reinforcement. That's the worst thing you can do. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I mean, if you don't want to give it up, then say you're going to have it on Mondays and Fridays by the end where, you know, after your workout or something like that, but, but. Mm -hmm. um, so, so that would be the opposite, right? Which is structured reinforcement. Yeah. Structure, it's predictable reinforcement. Yeah. Yeah. I understand. Fantastic. Well, I definitely think we should pull that apart on the next episode for sure. I, I think in the literature it's called fixed ratio. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Awesome. Well, thanks for being here. Appreciate your time uh, and having this conversation and I'm looking forward to getting it out to the people. So um, yeah, we'll, off, we'll get offline and organize another time for the next one. But uh, thank you for being here. Oh, I'd love to. I'd love to, yeah. Thanks, Maddie. So welcome. We'll catch you really soon. Okay, I'll catch you soon. Bye. Thanks for listening to the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. If you love this episode and health information is your thing, then please consider subscribing to the show. And when you're done, head over to iTunes, Google Podcast, or whichever app you use, and we'd be grateful if you could leave us a five-star rating and write a review sharing your opinion on the show as it really helps the podcast grow. Thanks so much, and I'll see you on the next episode. Whilst the presenter that feature on this podcast endeavour to provide accurate information, it cannot possibly take into account your individual circumstances, and therefore the content on this podcast provided by any of the speakers is not intended as advice in any way for any individual, and should not be a replacement for professional medical or health advice of any nature. Always seek advice regarding your personal situation from a qualified medical professional.